This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's largest voting bloc can't caucus next week. Unaffiliated voters aren't allowed to. That's more than a million people in this state. Add to that the Democrats and Republicans who want a caucus but can't spare the time next Tuesday. And these are reasons that critics say caucuses should be either changed or disbanded in Colorado and that the state should go back to having a primary. We're going to hear shortly from a political scientist who wrote about this in the Denver Post. But let's get to the practical. For starters, there is a movement to change how Colorado picks a president. Joining us is Curtis Hubbard. He's spokesman for Let Colorado Vote. And Curtis, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, present your plan to us. How do you envision changing things? Sure. So um, we have two different measures in front of the title board currently, and the one that um, speaks specifically to the issue we're talking about today is a measure that would um, restore the presidential primary in Colorado and then would allow unaffiliated voters to participate in that primary. And as you mentioned, there are more than a million uh, unaffiliated active voters in Colorado. Uh, They make up almost 36% of the state's electorate, which is the state's largest voting bloc. Um, And it is um, people who've been uh, in Colorado for a while will remember that we've held presidential primaries before uh, in 1992, 96, and 2000. Well, how would it work if you're allowing unaffiliated voters to take part in something that has traditionally been party-based? Sure. Well, I think one of the things that's important to know is that um, historically uh, and currently, the majority of states allow unaffiliated voters to participate in their presidential nominating contest. Mm. Um, Colorado is one of just 20 uh, that limits it to Republicans and Democrats. And so the way that we are proposing engaging these one million unaffiliated voters is to send out a combined primary ballot to unaffiliated voters. So just like Democratic voters have a ballot mailed to them and Republican voters have a ballot mailed to them, there would be a combined ballot mailed to the unaffiliated voter. And the unaffiliated voter would then choose one of the major parties' um, primaries to participate in without having to register uh, with that party. So, for example, I, as an unaffiliated voter, would get my ballot. I would decide that I am more interested in the Republican primary uh, this year, and I would then vote uh, for Republican presidential primary candidates. And you could not cross the party lines, though. So if you're unaffiliated, you've got to make a decision whether you're going to participate in the Republican or the Democratic primary, or in this case. Correct. And, And again, that's done currently in 30 states. So the support behind this measure is bipartisan, it would appear. You've got a former governor and Democrat, Bill Ritter, and you've got Don Bain, who's a former chair of the Colorado Republican Party. What is What does that tell you, you know, about this movement? Well, I think it, it, it's because it's a common sense movement and because people understand that the core issue we're talking about, which is participation in our democracy, should be encouraged. It's not overly contentious. It's not overly complicated. Our view is a simple one, which is that, you know, freedom and independence are core Colorado values. And because all taxpayers pay for elections, you shouldn't force them to join a political party if they want to participate. And so this would occur uh, in a mail-in ballot, this presidential portion of, of the primary? Correct. 
Okay. And then would you get rid of caucuses altogether or would they still serve a role for the parties? Because that... No, our view is um, the only the only real change um, as far as we're concerned with caucuses would be that the presidential nominating process would be moved to a primary election. So caucuses under our proposal uh, would continue to be used um, for, for the other purposes that they serve. All right. Something of a hybrid system. Uh, Curtis Hubbard, mm-hmm. how, how optimistic are you that this will make it to the ballot? And, and your goal, I gather, is is for this year. It is. For November of this year, um, I am incredibly incredibly confident that it will make the ballot and that voters uh, will support it. I think it's important to note here, um, when you compare turnout in caucuses or turnout in primary elections as we currently have them structured, it's dropping. So um, the caucuses, one of the challenges is it occurs on uh, one night on one day, right? Whereas our current elections occur over 22 days. Uh, you have evidence of how that limits participation in what we've seen in Iowa and in Nevada, where Democrats held their caucuses over the weekend. Iowa has nearly 2 million uh, active voters, 400,000 people turned out to their caucuses. So that's 20% of voters having a say uh, in Iowa, which is, you know, is held up as a great example. And in Nevada on Saturday, there are 471,000 active Democrat voters and 84,000 turned out to caucus. Um, so it's, it's, it's not something that encourages participation. It's not a system that makes it easy for people to, um, to participate. And then what we're seeing in Colorado with our primary elections is that participation is declining. So we've, we've gone from 33% participation of active voters in our primary in 2010 to less than 20% in 2014. And when our view is that when just one in five Coloradans is voting to pick who runs on the ballot in November, that we can do better. What about the expense here? Because my understanding is that part of the reason Colorado abandoned a primary and went with caucuses is that it's expensive to hold a statewide ballot election. Um, and of course, a- anything that gets proposed at, at the legislature, you're going through the ballot, but anything that gets proposed at the legislature, the immediate question is, how does the state pay for it? Yeah, so there's a, there are a couple of issues there. First and foremost, participating in our democratic processes should be encouraged first and, you know, uh, above all else. And so, yes, there are costs, and I don't, I'm not trying to minimize those, but the overall goal here is something that we, we all should be encouraging, right? That we, we want people to participate in the process and we want to make it possible for them to do so. Um, and so that's part of the answer. And then the other part of the answer is there is significant economic impact if Colorado restores its presidential primary and moves into a slot where it's early enough to matter. Um, our conservative estimates that we've seen show that Colorado could uh, have as much as a $50 million economic impact from campaigns coming and participating uh, earlier and in a, a more robust manner than they're, they're currently doing. Who's the major opposition? Who do you have to convince that is difficult to convince in this? Well, it's a little too early to say um, for certain. I think that there are some people um, who are party activists who will want to limit um, the, the, the primary election to the parties as they've, uh, as they've always done. Um, but we'll, we'll watch and see, and, and we'll continue to get our message out that we think that when taxpayers are paying for election, that they shouldn't be forced to join a party in order to participate. 
Curtis Hubbard, spokesman for Let Colorado Vote. And if you recognize that name, former opinion editor and columnist at the Denver Post. Thanks, Curtis. Thank you. Let's uh, talk now with Tom Cronin. He's a political scientist at Colorado College. He's a Democrat and with a Republican colleague at CC. He wrote an editorial about the caucuses in the Denver Post, and uh, he thinks that they are flawed as well. And uh, welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you. If you allow um, unaffiliated voters to vote in uh, a primary... Isn't there the possibility that they could work to kind of sabotage uh, a party that they don't feel they believe in? So, for instance, you you vote in the Republican um, primary to select a candidate that you don't think is viable in the general. Um, is there evidence that right. that, that, that happens? Uh, <clears throat> that is true, theoretically. Uh, political scientists have been studying that for about 20 years in the few states that allow those kind of things. And uh, there's not much evidence that uh, people actually go out of their way to do that. And uh, to my knowledge, there's virtually no elections that have been sabotaged or that kind of behavior. Mm. In an explainer that we did yesterday about the caucuses, uh, a political scientist, a different one, painted a, a rather lovely picture of the caucus, neighbors getting together and, and swaying each other as to their views. You, you would uh, abolish caucuses in favor of a mail-in primary. Would you be losing something, you know, beautiful in, in the caucus if you did that? Well, the gentleman or the general person who shared that view is correct. There is something wonderful about neighbors getting to, together with neighbors and bringing coffee and donuts and, and uh, uh, talking issues and talking about party building and talking up and, and, and debating over candidates so that a few people might change their mind. And uh, I've kind of carcasses all my life, and there's, a, <clears throat> there's much to be said for that. The, um, <clears throat> the reason why ultimately um, that beautiful picture of kind of a town hall, New England-style meeting doesn't really serve democracy well, democracy small d, is <clears throat> is that it disenfranchises too many people, Ryan. Um, uh, students who go to school at night can't go to caucuses. People who have two jobs can't go. Uh, single parents often can't go. Older people can't go to caucuses in February and March when the streets are icy and they don't go out after 4 o'clock oftentimes. And so you're disenfranchising <clears throat> Virtually 50% of the people who might go to a caucus, and uh, it's much easier to stop by at noontime when you're going to the post office to an element, elementary school and cast your ballot in a primary, or to do even even better, which is what I gather Curtis was suggesting, and that we support too, <clears throat> is a mail-in ballot. There's no reason why Colorado, which together with Oregon and a few other states has pioneered mail-in ballots, um, we know how to do that. Um, and it, it does have some expense, but um, democracy uh, is a little more expensive than dictatorship, and you have to kind of calculate and <clears throat> take into account the fact that you have to pay <clears throat> for a system of democracy. So caucuses are idealistic and heartwarming and um, fantastic, but you're getting uh, 5%. <clears throat> Remember in 2012 in Colorado, the Republicans nominated in the caucuses uh, Rick Santorum yes. rather than uh, Mitt Romney. Well, I think everybody who knows Colorado politics knows that this was a Mitt Romney state. 
not a Rick Santorum state. And uh, there's an old adage that uh, people in both political parties are aware of, and that is that you can pack a caucus, but you can't pack a primary. <clears throat> and uh, what happened in the 2012 instance is that evangelical groups and Tea Party groups packed caucuses, and Romney people were caught off uh, in a big surprise and had egg on their face as a result. So you can pack a caucus. You, <clears throat> you really can't pack a primary. Thank you so much for being with us, Tom. We appreciate it. You bet. Tom Cronin, political scientist at Colorado College. He's a Democrat, and with his Republican colleague at Colorado College, he wrote in the Denver Post arguments for why Colorado should reconsider its caucus system. There are links at cprnews.org, and this is a story that we will continue to follow. On our Facebook page, CPR News, we asked if you plan to caucus. I will, says Diana McGeehan of Lakewood. But, she adds, I hate the whole caucus process. I would love to simply cast a ballot and be done. I know, bad me, bad citizen. Dev Adams of Evergreen exclaimed, yes, our voice is so important. My partner and I will caucus for the very first time. Very excited about it. Meanwhile, Stephanie Lindbergh of Denver says she'll be teaching in another city and won't make it home in time. Coming up... A Colorado filmmaker dives into his Arab-American identity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What does it mean to be Arab-American? That's the subject of a new film available through PBS. Why are Americans so clueless about Arabs? Who do they think we are? I can't trust Obama. He's a... Um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. What is going on here? Why is being an Arab suddenly the opposite of being a decent man? The narrator there is Usama al-Shabi. He is Arab and grew up in a Muslim household. And he has made this film largely based on his own experiences moving to the U.S. from Iraq. He now teaches film at CU Boulder and at Colorado State University. And uh, Usama, welcome to the program. Thank you. Welcome. What about that interaction between uh, 2008 Republican presidential candidate John McCain and a voter rubs you the wrong way? Just (laughs) expound on that for us. It rubs me the wrong way because, okay, so they've been saying that that he's a Muslim, Obama, you know, Barack Hussein Obama. And what John McCain did is he said, no, ma'am, he's he's not an Arab, okay? She said Arab, but uh, he's a good guy. And I wonder, like, how people would feel about if someone said, no, 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 he's not Catholic, He's a decent human being <laughs> or, or any other, you know, religion or ethnicity. Um, so I'm wondering why is he – why should that matter? The real answer should be it doesn't matter whether he is Muslim or not or if he's Arab. And that's what sort of rubbed me the wrong way is he, had, he really had an opportunity to say something and correct her, but he didn't. He kind of half-corrected her in some respects and then wound up injecting an additional offense, it sounds like, from your perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Why doesn't it matter? Just say more about that. Because, of course, voters have been historically very interested in what a given 
candidate's religion is. I mean, that goes back to, to Kennedy and Catholicism and what their, you know, nationality or ethnicity is. Well, it doesn't matter because we don't have laws against this in the United States. You can come from any faith, any background, and that's what it makes the United States a wonderful country to be in, is that um, anybody could hold office, whether you are a Buddha or Buddhist or, or Hindu or Muslim, and it doesn't – I don't know how this, this, this narrative has been created that being Muslim – is a negative. And, I, and I'm starting to hear it everywhere. And it's, frankly, it's quite, it's quite upsetting. Before we go any further, let's define some terms, because you use Arab and Muslim somewhat loosely, even in your own film. But of course, there are differences, because you can be Christian and Arab. You aren't necessarily Muslim. Um, put a finer point on, on those terms and what they mean to you. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I come, I come from Baghdad, Iraq, and I grew up in a neighborhood where we had a lot of Christian Iraqis. We had several churches in our neighborhood. We also have a great tradition of Jewish Iraqis that came from our country, and we even have a synagogue. So yes, being Arab doesn't necessarily mean that you're connected to any particular faith. Being Arab just means you come from the Arab world or you speak Arabic. Um, the problem is that in this country, there's not a lot of distinction made between Muslim and Arabs or Persians and even Sikh, the, the faith. And I mean, we so, know that after 9-11, Sikhs were attacked. And continue to be. Uh-huh. Continue to be. Whenever there's some sort of hate speech, you see attacks against Sikh men or really anyone that wears a turban. For me, um, being an Arab uh, is a pretty fluid uh, identity um, there are atheist Arabs, agnostic Arabs, Christian Arabs. There are all sorts of Arabs. There are punk Arabs. <laughs> yes. In fact, your film is is uh, the first introduction for me into uh, Takwakor, which yeah. was Arab punk music. Thank you for that, by the way. Sure. The, the film is called American Arab, A Coming of Arab Story. Mm-hmm. And uh, you say that because you didn't really think of yourself as Arab when you were younger. It's an identity you grew into. Well, yeah. I mean, you you know, when I was in grade school, maybe some of the kids made some jokes about, you know, oh, I came from a country that had flying carpets or, you know, Sinbad and these 1001 tales. Um, some of the stereotypes were, were kind of goofy and and quite frankly, they were funny. And and maybe I, I allowed some of the kids to think that I actually did have a flying carpet. That was okay. <laughs> But but later on, when I started watching movies, I started to see Hollywood and even TV tell me who I am. And what they were telling me is that we are violent, we are crazy, we, we are sort of like womanizers, and all these sort of negative stereotypes um, that continue to this day. And I looked at those images and I said, that's not me. Look, any kid growing up in America, we don't necessarily look at ourselves and say, I'm Chinese, I'm Japanese, I'm Indian, I'm Pakistani. We're just we're just a kid, right? I I liked Star Wars. That's what I liked. Mm-hmm. I liked playing outside with my friends. Um I watched American TV shows and movies. I didn't identify or think of myself that way. And frankly, like you don't want to you want you don't want to be called out and pointed at and say, hey, you're an Arab, Osama, tell us about who you are. 
You just want to be part of the class, part of the gang. You talk to a lot of young people in this film whose teachers have asked them to be spokespeople for all Arabs or all Muslims. And what an awkward position that puts them in. Uh, there's a scene in the film where you go to what you call a flag rally in Illinois in 2002, and you talk with several people, uh, Caucasian Americans, about their views on Muslims or Arabs. It just bothers me because they're always saying, well, we're Americans just like you're Americans. But I say you never very rarely see them show their American pride. And if they want to be like us and be with us, they should be out here right now. Personally, I just, I don't like them. I don't like their way of life. I don't like the way they think. And I just don't like them. What's the first thing you say when you meet people with views that are like that? I don't like their way of life. Well, I wonder what they think our way of life is. I mean, traditionally... Um, Arab immigrants and many Muslim immigrants that come here do quite well. Um, in my family, in my culture, education is very important. And so Muslims and Arabs, uh, on average, tend to be more educated than your other Americans and, and do quite well. They pursue the American dream. So I have no idea. I mean, many Arab families have traditional what you call maybe conservative values. They, they, they appreciate their family and, 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 and have high morals about these things. So I don't, th almost every American probably knows an Arab, but they don't know that they know them. They're probably your dentist, your doctor, your teacher, your neighbor. So I'm not really sure what they're talking about. We're part of this country. We've always been here. Um, one of our greatest American heroes, his name is Muhammad Ali, okay? One of our greatest uh, radio DJs, Casey Kasem, his parents are Lebanese, you know? Even Tony Shaloub, he plays monk. Arabs and Muslims have always been here. We are America. This is our country. In the course of making this film, you were the subject of a hate crime. Yes. Tell us what happened. Um, this was when I was living in Iowa. I was out with some friends. We were drinking. Uh, I was walking home. I got invited to some sort of get-together. Things just turned sour very quickly when they found out my name. Um, Osama. And, yeah. They started calling me Osama bin Laden. And uh, they were kicking me and punching me and shoving me. It was, it was, a, it was a very chaotic incident. Um, and, you know, I, I went to the police, I went to the hospital. I never filed charges, um, because the case was just too messy. It was hard to prove. And also I didn't really want to go after the young people that did this. Um, I tried talking to them, but that, that never happened. Why didn't you want to go after them? Um, well... You see in the film, towards the end of the film, I talked to a mentor of, my, of mine. His name is Imam Taha. That run, he leads the oldest mosque in the United States called the Mother Mosque. And he just encouraged me to sort of forgive and let go and to look forward and not to look backwards. And it, it would have been a very difficult case. And I wasn't after any um, sort of legal repercussions. I... I, I was on the fence of what I should do. And, and because unlike Amal's case, which was very clear cut, my, my case was, was a little bit more complicated. 
there are instances of other hate crimes that you have in this film, including a woman who's at the grocery store and someone just tries to yank off her hijab pretty violently. Uh, she does pursue the case. The film also features a young man in Chicago named Marwan, who's Muslim and plays in a punk band. His father is Arab, his mother Polish. And she talked really personally about what the period was like after 9-11 for her family. Right after it happened, we could not function because we were so afraid. What will happen to him? What will happen to us? Even at my office, they were talking and, you know, kill those Arabs and this and that. Why would you be killing my husband? Why would you be killing my kid? For what? It was a horrible time. We can't talk about uh, American Arab and this coming of Arab story without focusing on 9-11 and how that shaped views in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, Where do you come out on that? Terrorism and what happened on 9-11 was against all people, okay? And we have to remember that people like al-Qaeda and ISIS, they have killed more Muslims than any other people. My homeland, Iraq, okay, we we are facing a, a dire situation with these terrorist groups. And we, as Muslims, are are the victims, the, the main victims. When those towers came down, it was against all of us, all of us Americans, okay? And Bush actually did a pretty good job in making sure that, that Muslims weren't attacked. Years later, I started to he- hear more of the bigotry and the hate crimes started to increase again. And what I'm hearing and what I continue to hear are politicians, right-wing radio, other types of media outlets that are not making that distinction between the faith, Islam, and terrorism. And they were just saying, Islam is our enemy, Muslims are our enemy. And that translates to hate crimes and violence on the streets towards us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Usama al-Shabi teaches film at CU Boulder and at CSU. His documentary, American Arab, is part of America Reframed, and it's available online for free through March 10th. There's a link at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's just something about a secret compartment, knowing that an object has something hidden within. Denver artist Kagan Sound has built his career on this. He makes puzzle boxes, basically wooden containers that can only be unlocked with a careful set of moves. He has won more awards than any other puzzle maker at the International Puzzle Party, and we paid a visit to his studio. Yeah, my name's Kagan Sound, and I make puzzle boxes for a living. To me, anything that is hollow inside and requires more than just one basic move to open. It's just any fascinating container that opens in an unexpected way. The first time I saw a a traditional Japanese puzzle box, we were in Chinatown and they were, you know, selling these in one of the shops there. Uh, It was an all-wood box with 20 sliding movements around it to open it, which just blew my mind. It was just like a fascinating mechanical object. 
I think as a kid, I also just tried to break things down. Like how were these made? It really left a lot to the imagination. Even, even after solving it, I just sat and wondered how could this even be made? Okay, so what did I like about solving mazes as a kid? I don't know what it was about mazes, but I, I was like a sponge. My parents would get me maze books and I would just solve them and then try and recreate them and draw them. And I started drawing mazes on massive sheets of paper that were three feet wide and four feet tall. And in a sort of funny way, I would like want my dad to try and solve these things. And he just would, it was so ridiculous that there was no way he could possibly do this. It would take him too long. And I think this is, this is in like 2001, I made a puzzle box and uh, I put it in a puzzle competition. And it was my way of expressing a maze in mechanical language. Uh, won two awards. I think it was the first time any puzzle won two awards. It's also responsible for putting me on the map and giving me this amazing job. This is a locked box until you play this tune. His ideas are really unique, and they're not just a variation of somebody's puzzle which often is the case, they're absolutely brand new and nobody's ever done anything like it. So Jerry Slocum is considered the world's foremost expert on mechanical puzzles. Kagan, I think, is another level higher in terms of the quality of and variety of designs, and his craftsmanship is just unbelievable. I'm sure you know about the desk that he made that's an organ. It's funny, people keep wanting to go back to the desk. At any rate, the, the desk itself plays music in that drawers are, you, you push them in and pull them out and it, the air movement of that is enough to make noises through organ pipes. So the air is actually pushed and moved around inside this desk. Essentially, it's remembering these notes that you play, and if you play the correct tune, part of it opens up. <laughs> Once in a hundred years or something would anybody come up with that, and nobody's ever come up with anything like that before. It's absolutely out of this world. <laughs> Those types of projects sort of lend themselves to a big story, and so people really want to hear about it. For me, I guess there's an equal amount of fascination in things that are probably less obvious in, in terms of telling a story through a design. And, you know, a box is sort of like a little miniature story. Kagan Sound is an artist and puzzle designer in Denver. See a slideshow of his work at CPRnews.org. Our news fellow Sam Brash produced that story. And special thanks to the Associated Press. When early map makers wanted to denote uncharted territory or wilderness, they wrote Hic Sunt Leonis, Latin for Here There Are Lions. That is also the title of a new poem from our resident poet David Rothman. He says it's a celebration of winter. Driving late, Black Canyon North Rim, January snow, drifting homeward inside a dishwasher, 40 minutes alone, no cars, no towns, no farms, no nothing. Hours to go, son Noah asleep beside me. Unplowed road, quiet powder driving, slow and slick after his ski race. 
the father, the son, a motor bubble traversing wildness. Rising up out of deep crescents, the road meanders, hugging contours, returning to ledges, plummeting right thousands of feet into obscurity. Suddenly, caught in the beams, the swirling eddies, what is that raised head? Two? No antlers, not lost cows, too big to be fox or coyote. The big one turns, galloping, loping, triangular face. The long gold tail snaps sideways in the beams. Then he or she, oh, see the cub, no doubt a she, is over the snowbank right, the small one uphill left, both rippling muscle paws splaying in the drifts. Why not yell, gasp, cry out to the wild, whatever it may be, of itself and of our creation? Here, now, those eyes, cunning, purposeful, eager to depart, accusatory, perplexed, gone. Not even ten seconds, the heart stopped, continuing into wild truth. Who are you, able so gracefully to walk the world naked on such a night? Noah scrambles awake in his seat. Dad, did we go over a cliff? No, look, look. Turning back to be sure, there it is. Enormous paw print evidence. Snow churning as before, filling them in as we depart. Then the lovely cats, parent and child, reunited nose to nose, perhaps, regarding red taillights, receding, continuing, imaginable, unimaginable, hungry, fierce. Are you okay? What was that? Alive. David Rothman is our resident poet. He also leads the graduate program in creative writing at Western State Colorado University in Gunnison. You can read Hicks St. Leones at cprnews.org. The program continues in a moment on Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In 1884, Evelyn Booth and his buddies left England to carouse, brawl, and shoot their way across the U.S. And along the way, they met a legend, Buffalo Bill Cody. But at a time when his Wild West show was floundering, Booth documented the trip in a blue leather diary. It sat quietly for decades at the Denver Public Library until an archivist, Kellen Cutsforth, started to read it. He then verified the tales and collected them in the new book, Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. Let's revisit that conversation ahead of Cody's birthday, which is February 26th. Kellen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. First off, who is Evelyn, Evelyn, pardon me, Booth? Evelyn Booth is a uh, landed English gent, and in today's terms, he would be a trust fund baby. Okay. (laughs) And um, so a well-off man who has uh, unlimited funds and can do whatever he wants. And what he wanted to do was explore, I suppose. The Civil War has ended, and the country is open for adventure and excitement and see all the sites, Niagara Falls, head out west, see the Native Americans, 
get a flavor of the country that's just starting to really become America. And he had the money to do it. And he had the money to do it, yes. This journal that he writes is full of fights, there's swearing, there's pranks. (laughs) Yes. What's funny is they don't even get out of London before they commit an act of petty larceny. Yes, stealing ducks, a crate of ducks, and then loosing them in a uh, pub where they have to be captured and and then they jump on their ship and they head off. It's a sign of the bad behavior to come, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, they would be considered frat boys probably today <laughs> or, or bros, if you will. So, yeah, in today's vernacular. They arrive in New York, uh, but that is not where they want to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evelyn Booth visits Niagara Falls Correct. with his friends, and they are unimpressed by Niagara Falls. They think it's too commercial. Yeah, people selling uh, what they call brummagen or just junk, cheap trinkets. And what's amazing, they're there in the winter. And so uh, I don't know if anyone's ever been to the falls in the winter, but the falls are iced over and they're really beautiful. They really are if you've ever ever seen them. And so, uh, but in his typical sort of English fashion, it's a backhanded, well, it's okay. It's it's all right. It's not great. They want to visit Colorado. Yes, they do. Why Colorado? So one of the main reasons they come out here is to hunt and uh, they want to capture a grizzly, and uh, today it would be considered trophy hunting. They do not end up in Colorado, however. Uh, instead, after some hunting trips, they end up in New Orleans. Yes, in New Orleans, and right? there, they at least come across someone associated with Colorado, and that's Buffalo that's Bill right. Cody. The, the West's favorite son. And whose grave is on top of Lookout Mountain, just west of Denver. Uh, what was the Wild West show like when Booth first went to see it. So the Wild West show, and uh, for the listeners, uh, Bill never used the term show. It was always Buffalo Bill's Wild West because it was supposed to be a historic entertainment or a historic event. When he found Uh, show to be dismissive. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And so if you ever see a piece of memorabilia that has the word show in it, it is bunko. It is fake. So um, Buffalo Bill never used that. Uh, he always, like I say, saw it as a historic reenactment. But anyway, when Booth and his companions see the show, uh, they're a little, again, disappointed because, one, it's raining the whole time in New Orleans. This is one of the reasons why Bill is having financial trouble at the mm. time because not, he's not getting many uh, spectators. And so they say, oh, they shoot very feebly and these sort of things. But... Um, um, they are uh, still impressed with Buffalo Bill that he has the ability to put something like an, uh, uh, an event like this together. And I think at one point, uh, Evelyn Booth and Buffalo Bill meet. Yes. And they uh, essentially engage in a shooting contest. Yes, they do. So uh, Buffalo Bill is a very good shot. He's been a buffalo hunter uh, for the railroad uh, in a previous life and a scout for the military and been engaged in uh, conflicts with Native Americans. And so he's a very good shot at this point, and so is Booth. And they have a shooting competition in front of 3,000 spectators and a competition, I might add, that the American wins, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill wins. Wins it, yes, by one one clay pigeon. And you... uh have acknowledged this, but these just aren't great days for Buffalo Bill. No, Otherwise, um, Evelyn Booth writes, I fear the Honorable Cody is having a bad time of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
audiences are, are small, as you say, in part because of the weather. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of props and equipment had been lost in an accident. Right. So before Bill came to New Orleans, which is where they were going to winter because they thought the uh, weather would be much nicer in New Orleans than, say, wintering in somewhere north where you run into a lot of snow, they uh, decided to head south. And whilst heading south down the Mississippi River, uh, the boat crashed into another uh, vessel and sank, and they lost their equipage. They lost uh, uh, many antelope and other animals that are in the uh, show, and they you know, sum of about twenty thousand dollars of loss on the river. Goodness. Well, of course, I'm thinking of Evelyn Booth as a moneyed individual. Yes. And the natural question would be, does he bail out Buffalo Bill? Yes, he does. he does. Okay. So along with the poor number of spectators at the show um, in New Orleans, they lost about $60,000 there with uh, low ticket sales. So when Booth and Cody get together and become friends and have their shooting competition, Booth eventually then steps in and becomes a quarter owner of the show. And I found the agreement that the two signed huh. together um, where Booth gave money to Bill and became a quarter owner of, of the Wild West. Yeah, B- B- Bill is like $80,000. Yes, 80000 yes. And at that time, we remember, is, is 1884. So That's a lot it's of It's a deep, deep hole that he's in, yes. We are getting a picture of the West through an Englishman's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is how you can describe Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. It is an Englishman's Journal of Adventure in America, and it was put together by Kellen Cutsforth, uh, who found this diary of this mm-hmm. Englishman uh, at the Denver Public Library. And uh, Kellen, I've uh, been fascinated by Buffalo Bill's life, how he went from frontiersman to running, don't call it a show, Don't Ryan, call it a show. Uh, reliving the... <laughs> glory days of the West, um, he'd won a Medal of Honor Correct. as a civilian scout during the uh, Indian Wars. Yeah. American Indians were part of this spectacle as well. Mm-hmm. What was the goal? What did he want to do to, for audiences? So he wanted to, because it was so unique, uh, the, the Native peoples uh, had such a unique culture, had such a unique life um, and style and look and everything. He wanted to bring that to people that he had seen in the West when he was a scout, when he was um, a buffalo hunter. And he wanted to give them an opportunity to get off the reservation at this point and bring their culture to uh, audiences who had never seen it, audiences in the East, audiences overseas. And does he strike um, like more of a freak show note or of a respectful note? I It, it is a respectful note. Um, I think uh, in today's history, uh, you get a lot of revisionist history that sort of perhaps he exploited them or mm-hmm. something like that. But I, I, there's really no proof of that. Bill respected the native peoples. He paid them as well as he paid any of the cowboys, any of the vaqueros, any of the other performers who were in the show. Um, and he respected them when it was when they wanted to return to their homes and their families, they were allowed to return. Some critics, though, over the years have said of Buffalo Bill's Wild West that it was one of the original sources of negative stereotypes mm. perpetuated by Hollywood right, for right, decades. Right. And that though that might not have been Buffalo Bill Cody's intention, 
that might be the legacy. Yes, and and that's very true. That uh, you are correct. Uh, Edison's first images on the kinetoscope were of performers in Buffalo Bill's Wild West, and then many other Hollywood directors and authors liked those images, and they took them and they built it into what we know today. Well, it's interesting that you mention Edison. Yeah, because I wanted to share something mm-hmm. with you. This is Buffalo Bill's voice. Yeah. We found an old recording. He is praising Thomas Edison for inventing the device that is recording his voice. It's pretty scratchy, as you might guess. It seems almost uh, uncanny that the voice in this place can be perpetuated and that he has sent out to the world his phonographs, which have given more entertainment and pleasure than any invention in the history of the world. Let me paraphrase there. Instead of saying his voice is being recorded, he says it's being perpetuated by this device. I love that. (laughs) Uh, We're going to perpetuate an interview right now. Um, And he says that this device has given, you know, the world more entertainment and pleasure than any he can think of. The audio comes from the G. Robert Vinson Voice Library at Michigan State University. Um, after all your work, Mm -hmm. what is your sense of what Buffalo Bill was really like? Um, being a historian and, and, uh, and also a fan of Bill, um, you know, he respected his performers. Um, I, I think it's important to note one of his most, uh, popular, if not the most popular performers and highest paid in his show was a woman. And he, uh, fought for women's suffrage. He respected the Native Americans that were in, that was in his show. Who who is and, the woman? Just uh, Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. Yeah, that's okay. right. I it might Annie, be get her. your gun. Uh, I find uh, Buffalo Bill to be uh, uh, very respectful and almost uh, loyal to a fault, um, even though he was probably a bit of a playboy and probably messed around a little bit on his wife. But All right. Yes. <laughs> so this Englishman, Evelyn Booth, who mm-hmm. meets him, um, does he help shore up Buffalo Bill Cody's career or fame or, you know, what, what happens? Uh, uh, he gives him the shot in the arm that he needs in the very beginning of the show. Bill's able to sort of get back on his feet and then make a, a lot of the losses back by touring around the East Coast. And then Booth is one of many Englishmen who helped Bill hatch the idea of taking the Wild West overseas, which created his superstardom, which mm. turned him into a rock star, if you will. How many places did he go? Like what kinds of countries? So he uh, all over Europe, um, in England first, um, and of course, uh, very well known, he played for uh, Queen Victoria. And um, he was so well-loved there, then they made a European tour into France and several other countries. And so he absolutely, Buffalo Bill Cody, did um, solidify in the world's mind what mm-hmm. the West was. Mm-hmm. And whether and, whether it was an accurate picture or not, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Uh, the mythic West, if you will, sort of uh, takes away the mundane life of a pioneer or people living on the plains and gives you the shootouts and the circling of the wagons and all these sort of things that uh, through Hollywood, through Buffalo Bill's Wild West, people identify as Western. Well, we've uh, got to wrap up with Evelyn Booth, <laughs> this English frat boy, as you've yeah, described right. him, exactly. who, and trust fund baby who comes to the United States and uh, has this storied encounter with Buffalo Bill Cody. 
Did Evelyn ever make it to Colorado to get his grizzly? I don't know if he ever made it to Colorado to get his grizzly, but I know that he did make it out west and actually own ranch land in Wyoming, uh, which was my estimation, something that Bill told him that would be a good investment if you own all this, some of this land out here. So, yes, he did make it west. Thanks for sharing this story with us. Denver Public Library archivist Kellen Cutsforth talking about his book, Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. Buffalo Bill Cody's birthday is February 26th. On Sunday, the Buffalo Bill Grave and Museum in Golden will celebrate Cody's birthday all day. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for spending time with us.